0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Karstblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Rob, it is great to be back with you this week and as far as I know, you're a big cycling fan, so I have to ask you what you think of the outlier of having a Danish ride in the lead of the Tour de France at this point as we can't really claim to have a lot of mountains for him to train in in, uh, in Denmark.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, like you know, British cyclists do pretty well and England's actually a relatively flat country, so but um, you know, still still very impressive of, uh, you know, Dan- Denmark's not a very big country, so um, you know That is true. I think as a,
0: as in terms of percentage of population you guys are doing pretty well. Yeah, we probably have a big number of or a big percentage of cyclists actually as a country so maybe. But as you and I were talking about just before I hit record, I have on one screen the uh, the the race going on so I can inform you live if something really important happens um because you know, it's not all about trend following.
1: I'm actually wondering, Neil, whether there's a this is a new format we could explore where we do a kind of joint cycling and sort of systematic trading podcast. You know, during just obviously just during the big Grand Tour events, so you know the the Giro, the Tour de France, and and um, the uh, the Welter. But you know, we'll see if there's demand for it.
0: As long as it's downhill, I think that would be. A, I would prefer that. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Anyways, more serious stuff, of course. We have a really good lineup of topics, which will surprise people today. I think they're going to be completely, yeah, surprised when they hear what we're going to talk about today. I think
1: I think people are going to think I've lost my mind, frankly. Anyway, we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, some people might have thought that already, but there we are. <laughs> there. We, <laughs> no, but I, I'm always curious to know kind of what's been on your radar since we last spoke. If there's anything that you've noticed from our industry, anything exciting going on from a research point of view or...
1: Um, yeah, no, I mean it's it's um, it's been an interesting uh, kind of year half. I mean we're sort of through the half year now, aren't we? So I, it almost feels like a, an opportunity to kind of take stock and, and look at look at what's what's happened sort of generally. Um, so actually, I, I've got this report, the little report I run, which shows the and um, the performance of dif- different markets and sort of says, well, which are the most surprising? And I measure that by using the the return normalized for the standard deviation. Um, so actually, interestingly, top, top of the charts are um, Ethereum and Bitcoin out of the markets that I monitor, which may link into some topics later. You never know. You know and then making up the kind of losers, um, we've got a bunch of uh, natural gas markets um, and we've also got um, VIX, the US volatility market. So I'm not sure whether that tells a, con- a coherent story, but it, it's certainly, certainly an interesting one. Um, and you don't, you don't tend to see these kinds of patterns unless you do this volatility adjustment, because otherwise, you know, if a mar- markets that are very volatile will always be at the top or the bottom of any any kind of ranking, it, and it's not as meaningful. So um, in terms of um, the other thing I, I like to look at is, is my kind of current um, sort of risk weighting to give, give me an idea of how my portfolio is positioned. And to be completely honest with you, one of the um, advantages for me at least is systematic trading, and particularly with my own money. Is I don't really tend to spend a lot of time actually looking at positions and trades on a daily basis. So I, I actually find that this podcast quite a helpful in forcing me to occasionally say, "Actually, you know, what, what is my positioning?" Because people often ask me, "You know, well, what do you think about you know the, the U.S. stock market?" And I'll go, "I I'll I'll need to check. <laughs> Just bear with me while I have a look at my system and see what it says." So, interestingly, at the moment, I'm actually um, my biggest long positions are in are in equities. Although we're not, not actually in the US. I'm long uh, the Cacarote, which is the what's the French market. I'm long Taiwan. I'm long Nikkei in Japan. Um, and I've also got some some um, positions on in the um, bond markets. I'm short bonds, mainly the US three-year bond, I'm short, actually, uh, which is interesting. That's not a contract that we often think about. It's normally the 2 five, ten, ten, so we forget about the three, but there is a three-year bond contract. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I really strongly believe in is diversifying across lots and lots of markets and, and, um, I'm actually adding an, uh, some more markets to my, my system at the moment. So, um, I'm kind of pushing up towards probably around the region of about, I hope to get to the, to about 250 markets in my system of which about 180 will actually be liquid enough to trade. So that, that's kind of a little project that I'm working on at the moment.
0: Of those 180 that are liquid enough, how many would you normally have uh, exposure to in any what given time? Um, so I'd
1: have positions on them in perhaps, in perhaps between 10 and 15, or maybe 20 markets at the moment, at the moment maximum, and that's a function of the fact I haven't got very much capital. It's not, it's yeah, yeah. Not but that,
0: it's your optimization process that exactly, gives you, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah sure, but so. it's
1: just important to say it's not that I think that the the 10 to 15 markets I currently have positions on are kind of special in some way. You know, it's not, it's not that that there's there's some kind of you know fitting process going on that picks out those markets it's purely that they they those markets best represent the portfolio i would hold if i had a a much larger amount of capital um so you know if i had a much larger portfolio i'd probably still be long equities but i'd be long lots of other equities it just happens that three equity markets i've listed are either because they're highly correlated with the rest of the market or perhaps because they they um that their sort of own signals are particularly strong represent my best my best bet in the equity sector so so it, that's quite interesting and i'm also let me just check uh, i've got a very small long position in bitcoin which again may relate to something that we we talk about a bit later so so yeah not a so long long equity short bonds is again that feels like that feels like a does feel like a consistent story actually very much a kind of you know risk on growth on set of positioning to have on so uh elite i would imagine that most CTAs is probably not dissimilar in terms of that overall positioning so uh it does feel like, um, you know, we're, we're kind of geared for kind of, well, possibly more inflation, you know, because that, that's, you know, short bonds, equities will hopefully be protected for inflation. So inflation not going away anyway anytime soon. Doesn't look like the portfolio also thinks about things that we're likely to start for interest rates to, to start, or certainly not, not start falling anytime soon, but it, it's also saying there's no significant tightening expected. So um oh sorry it's saying there could be more tightening to come you know we're not quite at the peak of that cycle that's what the that's what positioning is telling us i mean one of the advantages of trading systematically is you you don't have to consider the the kinds of questions that i don't know a a sell side bank analyst would have to answer all the time like i don't know what do you think the fed's doing what, do you, what are, what's positioning blah 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 the portfolio just tells you you know based based on the on the on the signals of the portfolio you should be short bonds from that you can then backwardly interpolate what you've what that says about forecasting, what the Fed's going to do. And in the long run, that that seems to be pretty accurate, at least in terms of predicting prices. But um, yeah, there's no need to make a kind of direct sort of reading of the tea leaves of, of, of the Fed minutes and all that kind of stuff that, that um, discretionary traders have to do.
0: No, no, absolutely. Yeah, it has been an interesting first half plus uh, 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 an extra couple of weeks. Certainly a few markets that not usually... Um, deliver strong returns, have certainly delivered so far this year. And actually, I mean, although bonds have, you know, retraced upwards a little bit this uh, week or so, it is interesting that they were down flirting with making new lows again after the SVB debacle and completely retraced all of that excitement. So, uh, yeah, 2023 could turn out to be an interesting uh, year, another interesting year, I should say. Certainly, from yeah, I mean, from from my point of view, just July so far, just a very briefly, uh, it is a little bit soft, sort of half halfway into July. I think performance a little bit soft in the in the industry, most likely from what I just mentioned before, fixed income markets uh, doing a little bit better in price um, this week european stocks may be struggling a little bit this week and the yen suddenly uh, having a little bit more uh, strength so to speak so i think that's probably been where the challenge has come from and then there's been a little bit of tailwind uh, i believe coming from markets like the mexican peso the euro and maybe um, sort of US and European net gas contracts uh, probably also done okay for trend followers. And still sugar. Uh, it's it's still pretty sweet, uh, so to speak. Oh dear, um, Neil. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Okay. Right. Trend barometer, 39, still completely stuck in neutral. I mean, and if you look at year-to-date returns, you probably understand why it's stuck in neutral because the beta 50 is down 39 basis points year-to-date, down four basis points so far in July so SockGen CD index down 1% this month, down about 1% for the year. Trend index down about 1.17 for the month, down 1.04 for the year. And the short-term traders index down 36 basis points, down 3.67% for the year. Whilst, on the other hand, equities doing really well. MSCI World up 1.79 in July, up 16% now for the year. S&P 500 up about 1.33%. And up 17 and a half of the year. And um, the MSCI, uh, not the MSCI, the World Government Bond Index is flat so far this month. Anything else you want to add before we jump into questions? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I actually forgot to talk about my own performance. So, for what it's worth, just throw that in there. So, year to date, I'm down 3.6%. So, a little bit more than the industry, but I've got a slightly high of all target and I'm not kind of 100% focused on, on trend following. So, you know, not sure that's meaningful. And uh, yeah, in terms of those mar- the markets where I've done badly, my worst market is US twenty year. So again, yeah, fixed income not been great for me this year. Uh, my best performing market has been has been the VIX. So yeah, but a very mixed picture actually in terms of in terms of PNL. No um, obvious patterns there, to be honest.
0: Okay. Let's start with a couple of questions before we get into the surprise topic of today. Uh, Scott writes in, I'm an avid listener and greatly appreciate all you do. I have a question for Rob. Rob, in your system, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, you first, firstly weight each instrument-signal combination on a correlation of returns and then apply a truncated weighting based on historical sharp ratios over the whole of your data set. So for example, if you have three signals, two of which are 100% correlated and one which is 0% correlated, I would apply weightings of 25%, 25% and 50% respectively. And then I would up or down weight, then again based on historical Sharpe ratio, on a scale from 0.5 minimum to 1.5 maximum, not down weighting to 0 or up weighting to infinity. This is an elegant way of sidestepping many problems with portfolio optimization, and in my simulations, this is highly effective in reducing drawdowns. This is trend following, but with quite acceptable drawdowns and reasonable sharp ratios, which makes me nervous about trading quote-unquote loose-pants systems in the past. I am concerned that I might be assuming that I can predict which instruments will trend in the future, which I don't think I can, and worried that I will downweight something which then starts to trend. Is this a valid concern? If it is, would a rolling window of sharp ratio with enough data to be statistically significant be better? Question mark. Thanks again, Rob. This is from Scott.
1: Um yeah, so just to kind of give a little bit of colour to those who may not be following Scott's question too so closely. This this is a question of portfolio optimization across different well. In this case, the assets are different trend systems, so they, you know, you could do this optimization across, you know, different kinds of systems. So You could say, well, I'm going to decide how much, you know, risk or cash to allocate to you know, my fast-moving averages, my slow-moving averages, maybe to carry as well if you've got in there, and you can also do this across instruments. So you could you could say, well, how much am I going to put into my trading strategy for S and P? How much into corn? How much into to sugar? And so on and so forth. But the, the, in terms of the actual kind of mathematics of the problem, it doesn't actually matter whether you're allocating to to systems, to instruments, or indeed doing some kind of portfolio optimization, you know, across any kind of asset. So that you could do this with the with the underlying assets themselves. It doesn't really matter. Um, and when you do any kind of portfolio optimization, there's a few things you want to take into account. One is how risky the assets are. Riskier assets can a lower weight. Now the nice advantage of working um, with with the sort of with a trading system is you would normally set your system up so it's got all your systems have got the same expected risk, same expected standard deviation, so that that problem kind of goes away. But that leaves us with just the two other factors to worry about. Um, the next one is correlation, which which uh, Scott talks about. So again, if you've got something that's really diversifying, um, so you you might find um, if, if you're say trading I don't know an S and P system a Bund system and a Bobble system, well, the latter two are both German bonds. So they're likely to be very correlated. So you would expect to want to put more of your money into the S&P and less into the, the two German bond systems. And, and as Scott said, there's kind of a heuristic rule of thumb in the situation, which would be to say, well, I'm going to put half my capital in the S&P and then split the rest the other half of my capital up into the two German bonds, because you can think of that as saying, well, that way then I'll get equal risk to, you know, to bonds and equal risk to, to stocks. Um, and you'd also have equal risk to the US and equal risk to Germany in this example. And it's not quite as simple as that. There's a f- couple of other wrinkles to that, but that's the basic idea. And then the third thing that you need to consider when doing any kind of optimization is performance, expecting returns. And this is the, where, where Scott's kind of running up against the feeling of, well, you know, is this the right thing to do? Um, now, what he's actually describing is a, a methodology that I, I talked about in my blog but I don't actually use myself. Um, but basically, it's a way to essentially adjust these simple portfolio weights according to the, the kind of back-tested chart ratio of, of the system. So, for example, let's suppose the Bund system is am- just amazing and it completely wipes the floor with both the Bobble and the S&P system. Well, instead of giving that 25% of your risk, you might want to increase that by, um, as Scott says, by a factor of one and a half. So you you'd bump it up to about 37%. And obviously, the other two instruments would then reduce their risk. Um, now, actually, um, this this is it, this. The, 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 so he says it's elegant. Well, it's elegant because unlike a kind of standard portfolio optimization, where you you take this sharp ratio estimate and put it into the optimization, most likely what that would probably do is say, well, you should put everything into the bund because the bund is amazing. It's just just it's fantastic. But that's obviously very very risky, and is assuming that you've got you know you a, a, basically assumes you can perfectly predict the performance of your systems will be in the future which you just can't do so the the question is you know essentially how far you move along a sort of continuum where at the start of the continuum you're saying well you know what i can't predict the performance of future trend following systems I, I can't predict whether the bond is going to trend or the S P is going to trend. i just can't predict it and what's happened in the past has no relevance to me or you kind of go the the sort of naive full-blown optimization methodology, which would then say, well, yeah, just put everything in the bund. It's amazing. It's great. Just you don't need anything else. It's all you need. You can close down the rest of your strategy. Just just go with the bund. Um, and then sort of a halfway house is to say, well, let's move some way towards that by putting a bit more into the bund, but not everything. So it, it's kind of a heuristic way of doing that. Um, so the question becomes, how far along that continuum should you move? And it's not actually a very simple question to answer because it comes down to um, essentially how well you think you can predict the, you know the, the the future performance of a given system and tied into that is how statistically significant the results of that system were in the past so you kind of have to make two sets of assumptions one is that the past the results you've got from the past are statistically significant and secondly that the past can predict the future um and then that's kind of joint decision now for me personally when i look at trading strategy returns generally speaking i don't actually do this i don't actually in reality put more into the bund in mean, this simple example. Um, and the reason for that, exactly is Scott says, I just don't know what's going to be trending tomorrow. It might be that tomorrow the bubble does matter than the bund. You know, and, and, and if I look at the past, yes, there is evidence that the bund is better, but it's pretty weak evidence. I never really see strong evidence that, that one system is better than the other, at least when looking across different instruments. Now, that isn't necessarily true if you're doing the optimization for different sort of kinds of trading so for example if you're doing something like optimizing over different speeds of trading you know you you definitely for example want to downweight a fast trading system if you're trading something that's very expensive um, but you can also you also tend to see that for example fast trend following even ignoring costs completely just doesn't seem to do quite as well as kind of medium and slow trend following so that suggests that there is enough evidence there to perhaps downweight the faster trend following in favor of the medium and slow and of course you know, if you're running a trend-falling fund, you, you might want to do that anyway, because you, you don't want to be kind of fitting into the fast trend-falling bucket. You want to be staying in the kind of medium to slow kind of standard CTA. So um, I would say Scott's right to be concerned. And that's why in practice, although I presented this as a kind of technique on my blog that you could use if you did want to do this kind of portfolio optimization, in practice with my own portfolio, I don't, I don't actually do it. So this is very much an example of do what I do,
0: don't do what I say. A question that came in from Andrew. He starts by uh, saying, you probably have enough questions for Rob, but all I can say is we can never have enough questions for Rob, of course. However, if not, here's a few questions. Uh, thanks for your work. I rarely skip any of the podcast. I purchased all of Rob's books and I appreciate how specific you are in your illustrations. Thank you for being accessible to average retail investors like myself. Here are a few questions. First I'm um, trend-following the trend-following ETFs using exponential moving averages such as 16 over 64, 32 over 128, and 5 over 20. Is trend-following the trend-following ETFs a good idea or a bad idea? That's an interesting. That is a very... So that's just to be clear.
1: We're, we're, what we're talking about here is a, an ETF that gives you access to a trend-following a trend type strategy. Um, I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. And of course... A, um, a, a such a fund has been launched or is about to launch in the US. Um,
0: well, it's live in the US. It's live as in of the US. A couple US. of days ago. Yeah. Yes. So
1: the and uh, I, I love the ticker of this fund. Um, sure. It's TFPN, yeah. which yeah. I believe stands for Trend Following Plus Nothing. That's and uh, listeners can't see this, but Neels can. That I've put as my screen name um, on the the podcasting platform that we used to record the episode. I put Rob TFPE carver where of course the e stands for everything because i i am a bit more pragmatic for example than some people we might say so anyway let, let's uh so yeah know anyway, that I And mean, it's good always good to see another trend following etf on the market um because um Absolutely. they're a great way of accessing um the strategy for people who don't have the you know the, both the capital and also the the expertise to, to to do it yourself so you know good luck um to that to that fund definitely probably should, can't say anything else because of marketing compliance-type restrictions. We'll,
0: we'll, let, we'll let Jerry do the talking. We'll let, Jerry, and
1: we'll let Jerry do the talking. Of course, he's a better salesman than either of us. Um, anyway, so, it's a, so this is a fund that, that's designed to capture a trend-following strategy. And the idea is to tr- trend-follow those. So it's kind of almost like a second-order trend-following or a, met- a meta-trend-following. For me, I could actually think about this in a, in a, in a, a slightly different way because I actually looked at a related version of this question a few years ago myself. And what I said was was something else, which is to say, well, let's suppose I'm invested in a trend-following strategy. Does it make sense to do something which some people call trend-following the account curve? In other words, if this thing starts to do badly, should I reduce my allocation to this strategy? And then if it does well, should I increase the allocation? And if you think about it, that's also related to the first question that Scott was asking. Because, you know, this is a bit like saying, you know, I want to put more money into things that have done well. But this time we're looking on quite probably relatively short time periods, so we might be looking at the last few months or maybe a year of performance and using that as a decision whether to to upweight or downweight. And in fact, if I look at the the numbers in in Andrew's question, the the, the exponential moving averages, you know, we're going to be we're going to be looking at a few weeks or months of performance here with those kinds of numbers um, to decide whether to scale in and out the trend following strategy. Um, so what this essentially comes down to is, um to get technical for a second, the autocorrelation of returns. So the autocorrelation of returns just means how likely is it that a a a negative return is going to be followed by a positive return or followed by another negative return. And you know that this is obviously the phenomenon by which trend following makes money, because obviously if markets are positively autocorrelated over certain time periods, then you know, if the market's gone up last month, well then, if it's positively autocorrelated, it means it's going to go up this month as well. Well then, you should go along that market, and that's obviously just a, a very simple trend following strategy. Um, so many markets do show kind of positive autocorrelation uh, patterns at the you know at these sort of time periods. The question then becomes whether a trend following strategy, or equivalently for this question, a trend following ETF, would also show a, a similar pattern. Would it show this sort of positive autocorrelation? Um, and uh, uh, the risk of, of being accused of trying to plug my latest book um i do actually look, look at this uh in there and uh, i look at the autocorrelation over over various periods um and um, what i find is that the evidence is mixed there's not really much there there's there is there's, and one one problem is that people have looked at this in the past um, but they've tended to look at trend following hedge funds and the problem with trend following hedge funds is that performance fees actually distort the autocorrelation patterns because obviously for funds doing really well then performance fees will be coming out of it and reducing its returns if it starts doing badly then there won't be the performance fees applied and that will make the negative returns look less bad compared to the positive ones um, and what that means it basically is it creates a kind of uh, artificial negative autocorrelation uh, and if you're investing in the underlying strategy or in an etf that has a management fee and no performance fee that effect isn't there so you need to come in and abstract away from that as well because winton for example have done done some work on this but they've looked at the the hedge funds which as i said this problem um anyway so i found that there weren't particularly any strong results where i found the strongest result and it still wasn't that strong we're looking at the one year performance i should also say as well i wasn't doing quite the same thing here what i was doing here was was looking at the switching between a trend following and a carry strategy implicitly what what you know what i just talked about is shifting between a trend following etf and cash it's not quite the same thing um but i I did a similar analysis just on trend trend following and got fairly similar results um but i did find that the 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 window where it worked best was was on a one-year horizon in other words if you look at performance over the last one year generally speaking you know you're the it makes sense to hold that particular strategy for another year going forward so but it is quite a weak effect um, and it's, it's, remember it's a year, whereas Andrew's talking about, you know, much, much quicker, quicker and periods. So I would say probably not. I would, I would personally not do this strategy is is my opinion. I, I'm Niels, I don't know if you feel differently. Um, I mean, you could take one view, which is that, well, we can try and follow anything and it doesn't really matter what it is. It's just that I think in this case, there's probably good reasons why this wouldn't work as well as as trend following something else. But maybe you think differently.
0: No, no, I I agree. And I think that most people who have been in this uh, industry uh, for a while would would conclude that you shouldn't trend follow a trend follower. Now, I've never done any studies on this. um, But I would just say sort of anecdotally, the best time to buy a trend follower is when they're in one of their normal drawdowns, and and there's no, I don't have any evidence uh, for that. So as such, other than trend followers seem to come back from their drawdowns, <laughs> and and have done so every single time. So that seems to me like a logical entry point, rather than buying the latest a new high, which of course is where most people will invest, because that's their, where they can s- get sucked in from the success of of trend following. And this is also why some investors, if their time horizon is not long enough. Will end up feeling somewhat disappointed because they didn't make a new high necessarily in the next three or six months or year for that matter. So, yeah, I I I, I agree with you.
1: Yeah, and just just to say as well, the, the 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 effect of performance fees is to make that strategy described even stronger, right? Because obviously, if you're investing in a let's say there's a, you're in a fund that's in a twenty percent drawdown, the next twenty percent you earn is free of performance fees. So you're kind of getting an extra twenty percent for free. Whereas if you invested a high watermark then obviously you start paying performance fees straight away so so yeah I, I would say yeah I'd say the other thing to say is that um trend following ETFs are a great way to access you know the asset class relatively easily um but if you do want to try if you do want to sort of trend follow ETFs then just get go out and get some cheap you know some cheap um long only S&P you know ETF that you can get for five basis points a year because you know, these trend-following ETFs, the, the, obviously because they're a- actively managed, they they do have a higher higher cost. I mean, you're looking at um, probably 100, 125 basis points, um, which, you know, for a, for a passive ETF would be very expensive. So it's quite an expensive way potentially to access the trend-following class rather than just sitting there and holding on to it. Or alternatively, if you do want to get actively involved in trading, yeah, do that. But do it with cheap, much cheaper ETFs and do it with the underlying instruments rather than with the trend-following ETFs.
0: Yeah, and I just want to clarify one thing just so there's no misunderstanding. Just because a, f- a manager is in a drawdown doesn't mean that the fund you buy necessarily gives you a free ride. It depends on the way they calculate performance fees because some uh, funds does it per share class. And if you get your own share class, uh, if you invest, you invest at a new uh, all-time high. But if it's a pooled where it's just based on the combined NAV of the fund, then you can definitely... Issue- as you suggest, um, get a, a free ride uh, essentially until the next all time high. All right, Andrew continues. Secondly, in your books, you recommend when using an exponential moving average, use two factors uh, of four, such as six, 1664, 3828, um, etc. Yet many of the studies I see illustrating profitable moving averages use 10 across 100, uh, 10 across 150. Or 20 over 120. What is the advantage of factors of four? So, to be honest, a lot of it
1: is down to kind of neatness. So, for reasons that are a bit too technical for this podcast, if you let's say you, so we're talking here about pairs of exponential weighted moving averages and an exponential weighted moving average crossover trading system here, okay? It would be similar with simple moving averages as well, wouldn't make much difference. Um, and the idea is that you you know your 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 signal is the fast minus the slow. So it would be the fifth. The fast was sixteen. For me, I'd then multiply sixteen by four and get sixty-four. So my slow would be sixty-four. So my signal would be sixteen-day moving average minus sixty-four-day moving average. Um, now the advan one of advantages of four is that yeah, the reasons that are too technical to go into. Basically, if I double the 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 kind of lengths of my moving averages. In other words, if I go from say eight thirty-two to 1664 if i if i do that then the the correlation of adjacent moving average crossovers the re- correlation of their returns has is basically has a uh, consistent pattern in other words i basically achieve a maximally diversified portfolio so that means if if you were using say if you were using 10 100 then the other moving averages you should be using are 550 2200 and so on if you were to go tighter than that, then you'd get correlations of like 0.99 between adjacent moving averages, so you'd be achieving very little diversification. If you were to go broader than that, then your your correlations would be, for me at least, too far apart. And, um, you know, the, the, so, there's, so, there's, so there's something very neat about having, you know, doubling things that have a multiple of four, because you end up with, yeah, two eight, because obviously four is, four is two squared, you end up with two eight, four sixteen, and so on and so forth. So it's quite neat. And that that's the reason why I, I I kind of went for four, because to be honest, it doesn't make a massive difference exactly what you go for as long as it's around three, four, five. So actually, another reason I went for four was, and, and I think I can probably disclose this now because it's been many years since I worked there and I'm sure they don't do that anymore. But but when I was working at AHL, they used, their magic number was three. Um, so they would use, you know, Something times three, something else times three, and and when I came to implement my own system because I I was writing about it in a book, I thought, well, I better not use three because you know I might get sued, <laughs> which is seems kind of silly now that you know uh, perhaps I was a bit more paranoid that, then than I am now, and you know, because this this three is this kind of big trade secret there <laughs> Oh God, don't tell,
0: don't. You can imagine, don't tell anyone about the three. It's probably just because there were three founders so that just picked the number three, right? There's no magic to yeah, it. Yeah, there's
1: no magic to it at all, definitely. So I <laughs> thought, well, I'll use four. And the advantage of four is I know it's going to be roughly about right because it's pretty close to three. And I also know that it has this nice property that when you double the horizons, that you get the nice stacking of the numbers. Um, but actually, yeah, if you if you look at this empirically and you can use do empirically using two different methods, you can either use real data or you can use artificial data. Um, um, artificial data, which you created to have basically a trend plus noise in it. Um, and what, you know, th- those kinds of numbers tend to give you the best compromise between a trend filter that is adaptive, in other words, when the trend changes, it changes direction, but also not too noisy. So if you think about the pair of numbers, the, the fast and the slow, the bigger the ratio between them, in other words, so 10-100 has got a ratio of 10, that's going to be very noisy because there's not really much, it's going to be, that's going to be very reactive. The fast is going to react quite quickly to changes, but because there's a huge gap between the numbers, it'll be still be, it'll be a long time before the crossover happens. So it's expensive because it's got a small N, but it's also not very reactive. So it's kind of, it's a really poor, poor compromise. Uh, alternatively, if if you had, um, you went too far in the direction and you had a crossover like, well, let's be silly, like 9,900. Silly really, but there we go. Um, then then that would be uh, something that, that would be very, very reactive, but it would just be noise, you know, because those two crossovers are highly correlated. They'll be flipping from day to day. There's going to be, you know, um, there's the, the, going to be quite slow because that's going to be actually quite expensive to trade, you know. So it's about, essentially it's about compromising those, and it's actually possible to mathematically show, given a, a certain return distribution lots of assumptions you could actually derive mathematically what the correct ratio would be um i've not done it myself but i've, I've seen other people do it for fun at parties because that's the kind of parties i go to am joking it was was not uh, it wasn't at a party it was at a conference you know so but i would say to people you know don't get too up, tied up about four anywhere between probably between two and six will work equally well um and you know don't Whatever you do, don't go and optimize this number either, because that's then you're, you know, you're fitting another parameter. So that's why I always use four, right? That's why I don't optimize and fit and say, well, I'm going to use you know three seven and I'm going to use twelve um, fifty, which is very close to twelve forty eight. You know, don't optimize it by picking one number. I'm effectively reducing the degrees of freedom on my trading system, making it less likely I'm over optimizing.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of robustness just picking numbers that are, you know, as you said, not uh, completely. Fine tuned. All right, well, third question from Andrew is using a free backtesting system online that only goes back to December 31, 2002, testing against five major ETFs, and he lists five major ETFs. I cannot find a single exponential moving average combination outperforming buy and hold over that time frame. Am I missing something? Is the backtesting timeframe too short? Should the EMAs be outperforming buy and hold, question mark, or simply reducing drawdowns?
1: Yeah. Um, also, just to say that the five ETFC lists are, um, you know, those are one's gold, one's inflation-protected treasury securities, one is the NASDAQ. So they're kind of big, you know, big markets, basically. There's nothing weird, there's nothing weird about them. I think we should say that up front. Um, so my my mind my my I always kind of get really nervous when someone starts a sentence with using a free backtesting system online because the story the story normally ends with them saying well I've found this strategy that makes ten thousand percent a year and I'm I'm going to be rich what do you think um, so it's it's kind of interest or nice almost to hear a story that starts that way but doesn't end up with that punchline but anyway um, well I've got a lot of questions really so one one question would be you know he says outperforms well how is he measuring out performance you know is he is he using you know just outright returns um is he using risk adjusted returns Um, and the other question that that isn't obvious to me from that question from the way he's described it is is he running a long short system or a long only system for example so if he was running a long only system and if he was running it just measuring returns as performance i would be not surprised at all if it underperformed the long only system because, you know, for, basically, you know, it's gonna ha- you're gonna you're gonna have a lot less risk because there's gonna be a lot of times when you're completely out of the market, uh, and inevitably there's gonna be times when you're missing out on big bull runs as something like QQQ, the Nasdaq. Um, so your risk is gonna be lower, your drawdowns gonna be lower, but your absolute return, yeah, probably will be lower. To be honest, I mean, and, you know, the only the only time you would definitely outperform a long only system would be if you had a you know a long only trading system with a moving average. Um, and that, that that basically just kept you flat the whole time, in which case, you know, your perform- ad performance would be great because you'd be flat the whole time and the long only system would just be consistently losing money. Um, but none of, none of these markets would kind of like that. So so that's one question I have to say. Having said that, it's not... I know I could probably... Um, I've got, you know, a couple of hundred markets in my data set. I, would, I could easily find 20 or 30 which, which haven't... in which trend following for any moving average hasn't worked, the last 21 years very easily, and that because that that's effectively what i'm doing there is a kind of reverse data mining right i'm kind of i'm kind of cherry picking to basically look bad rather than good which is what you normally do um so it'd be very easy for me to write and i've seen people write blog posts like this saying oh trend following is awful look i pulled out these five markets and look for the last 20 years and uh oh it's terrible they do really badly trend following is awful well of course you know someone else could equally pick Five, find something else, another trading strategy, which in reality is hopeless. But I bet you could still find five markets that over the last 25 years or 20 years have done really well in that particular strategy. Again, put them on your blog, say, yeah, strategy X is amazing. Um, but all, all we're doing here is working with a, a limited data set, both in terms of time period the last 20 years, but also in terms of markets. So I would be surprised if no trend following system works on any of them. And it may be because it's a free backtesting system that's not really working very well. It may be to do the way the performance is being measured. It may be because it's long only. You know, there are the, I've got so many questions here. Um, but but even even if all of those questions have the right answer, it could still just be bad luck at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people who come to trend following, Rob, they will have read a book and they they'll probably the first inclination I think will be ah, this should work on equities. And I also think that a lot of people actually promote trend-following specifically on equity, saying, yeah, this is really great. But I'm not so sure necessarily, speaking of that time frame, the last 20 years or so, uh, certainly the last 15 years or so, I don't think necessarily, at least if you trade indices, and some people will say, well, that's exactly why you shouldn't trade the indices. Well, again, uh, that's a you know matter of opinion. But I do think a lot of people... May not feel that that has been a great sector to do trend following because we've had these big reversals in the last twelve, fifteen years, and as you say, it tends to take you out, and then it takes time before you get back into the into the uh, uh, long side of the of of the trade. So, comparing to buy and hold, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that doesn't sound surprising to me. Now, I know he mentions a few other uh, markets, etc. But just just from memory, equities haven't been necessarily a great sector for.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's got five ETFs. Three of them are equity indices. So you've got a Dow Jones one, a kind of global um, equities one. Uh, You've got QQQ, which is a Nasdaq, and then there's there's TIPS, which is Treasury, it's it's inflation-linked securities, and GLD, which is which is gold. So you know that that's that sample of first of all, it's just five markets. Second of all, as you say, it's heavily biased towards equity indices, which, you know, and it, it, to be fair, it's not just the last 20 years, equity indices have been the worst, in my in my book, I look at this, equity indices have been the worst sector for trend following um, out of all of them. Um, but does that mean you shouldn't trade them at all? Well, that comes back to the question we were asking before, but maybe downweight them a bit, but as we discussed earlier. Yeah. I mean, this is know.
0: interesting because of course, um, uh, some people love equities and have it as a big portion of their portfolio and this is something I feel that people miss when they get introduced to trend following a lot certainly if they want to do it DIY and that is really the importance of true diversification because that is really the secret sauce that we we talk about but we don't really make always make it clear that don't start doing trend following unless you can get you know very very decent diversification in your in your portfolio Right. Well, I mean, you mentioned markets that you know that's been advertising ten thousand percent returns and and sort of a little bit um, out there. And of course, what we're going to be talking about now is why on earth you've gotten yourself as a crypto skeptic, a self-proclaimed crypto skeptic. You've got a gig now. I, I assume a paid gig. To be somewhat of a advisor uh, to a firm, a crypto hedge fund, um, as as I understand it, this is this and is my so guilty secret. It is that is yeah. really a guilty pleasure, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure if it's a
1: pleasure. Or I'd be doing it for free. They are paying me, as you say. Yeah, I'm a, I am a crypto skeptic, and I still am a crypto skeptic. I, I believe that that um, you know crypto is is a is a bad thing. I suppose I I, I can't see myself ever, for example, buying crypto on what you might call a cash or a spot basis um i know this this is an industry that's full of crooks and, and and scumbags to be honest i've traded the um two cme listed crypto futures for a few years now it's the bitcoin and ethereum uh, people have said to me well doesn't that make you a hypocrite oh, i don't think so because because you know i i trade lots of things i trade crude oil for example i still believe that there's an you know there's an energy. There's there's a climate crisis. We should be using less oil. You know, I, I go both long and short crypto, as the system wants me to. It's not that I have a strong opinion either way. Um, I have a personal opinion that it's bad, but I'm perfectly happy to hold the future while it's going up and, and, and make money from it. I don't see that as a as a kind of as a, a conflict. But uh, you could argue. <laughs> but what I'm doing now goes beyond that a bit. So. So yeah, I've known I've known the guys that run this firm for a few few years now. Um, I'll mention them just once. They're called Stylist Digital. There you go. That's the promo over. I don't want this to be a promo episode. I said over a few years ago, and, and they came to me a, a little while ago saying, you know, well, do you do consultancy? We didn't know you did consultancy. Yeah, I do. I do consultancy, but only for people who only for people I like who I know well and who I trust. Um, so, please, listeners, don't start writing and offering me work. Uh, it's not going to happen. And um, I and and uh, this, these guys are like, well, you, you know, we're friends, we know each other well, we trust us, we're good guys. I said, yeah, but you run a crypto hedge fund, and I said, oh, and I, and they said, yeah, but you know, you, we, we we're systematic trend followers. You know, we bought all of your books, and our system is basically well, you're from your books. So you know, we're we're about as as kind of closely aligned to your your views as possible to be. And I said, yeah, but you're a crypto hedge fund. Uh, i said well okay i'll think about this but but one thing i want to be very clear i'm still going to be a crypto skeptic and you're still going to see me on twitter saying you know all bad things about crypto in fact just this morning i posted uh reposted a thread of somebody criticizing you know some of the kind of slide decks of a crypto hedge fund back in the day uh, i haven't changed my opinion and they're like yeah that's no that's fine we we want you know we we, we think our clients will appreciate your independent thoughts so so yeah, I, I, I'm I'm basically taking the crypto shilling or coin or whatever it is, and uh, although I'm being paid in in fiat currency, I must say I'm not I'm not stupid. But yeah, I mean, I was just saying to you before we started the podcast that that the crypto is something I would like to go away because I think it's a bad thing environmentally, and it's a lot of people lost a lot of money, a lot of people have been ripped off, and it's encouraging gambling. But it doesn't look like it is going away anytime soon. It's it's kind of intellectually interesting as a, as an asset class, um, and uh, you know that there's the, some interesting things about it. Um, and I kind of I'm of the opinion that that if someone's going to really trade this, they should be trading it properly, and hopefully my advice will help with that. Um, and uh, you know, I I think also that my next book, dare I say it? Ooh, ooh! That's I know another well, shocker. It's going to be it's going to be at least probably a year and a half before I start writing it because I'm I'm too busy at the moment, but. I think my next book will include some stuff about trading crypto purely because I'd I'd like to kind of say to the you know the average person on the street if you like well if you really must do this crazy thing here's how to do it in in the safest way possible in, in, in a kind of systematic way so 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 um the, you know this this work
0: is potentially helping me with that as well so what can I say well you can say a little bit more about f- Trading crypto actually because one of the topics that you also mentioned, and I think this is actually that's going to tie into another topic that we're going to come to uh, later in our conversation today, uh, and that is about you know trading things safely. Let's put it that way. And obviously, I've heard a podcast where you and your uh, on, and the people you work with uh, were quizzed by someone that clearly came from the crypto uh, space. Um, and and um, and you're right. I mean, you certainly have some uh, different opinions and, and so on and so forth. But then you raise this question about you know can it be traded safely? Um, I imagine when you think about that, you think about yeah, it can be, but you have to go to the exchange, and that limits the choices down to two futures contracts, as far as I can tell. But but if I misunderstood that, how how do you how do you think about trading crypto safely, even if you follow trend following rules? So,
1: I guess the, so what you're trying to do is reduce counterparty risk. Okay, so there's a whole separate question about position sizing and leverage and about whether, whether you know, so for example, crypto returns a very fat tail and that means you need to think more carefully about volt targeting. Well, we can talk, that's a separate issue. Purely in terms of counterparty risk, obviously, what you don't want to do is give all your money to the next Sam bankman Freed. you know, you don't want to do that. So, you know, you are looking for an exchange that, that, I mean, it's obviously a lot of people thought that his, his exchange was, was perfectly safe and all FTX was you know, the premier safe exchange. So I would say you're probably, I'm not going to endorse any particular exchange cause I, I don't use them myself. Um, but obviously you're looking for something that's, that's all, that's definitely, um, you know, domiciled in a onshore jurisdiction. So, you know, in, in the U S or in the UK or in Europe. Which limits it to a very small number, and ideally something that has some kind of regulatory approval. Although you know, we obviously there's an exchange in the US which is, which is is listed in the US, so it's kind of got regulatory approval from that perspective. But simultaneously, the SEC is trying to shut it down. So, um, so you know, there, there is no. The fact is, and the, the honest truth is, there is no exchange that would be safe enough for me personally to put my money into. And that that's you know that's why I only trade on the CME with a derivative contract um so it's a question of degree so the one one extreme you're going to have some very dodgy offshore based you know fly-by-night crypto exchange that probably won't be here next week Another the other extreme you've got the cme so it just depends on where your personal threshold for counterparty risk sits on that now what one thing that that's kind of interesting is that um crypto hedge funds that are sensible do both you could just trade on the CME, but then you're limiting yourself to two contracts. And as we, you said just a few minutes ago, diversification is the most important thing in trend following. Um, so just li- just buying two out of however many coins are out there that are liquid and you can trade. I mean, there's probably probably now 30, 40, 50 coins that are kind of what I would describe as institutionally liquid. So they're kind of liquid enough that kind of a reasonable size hedge fund could trade them you know, going from a universe of 40 or 50 down to two is obviously going to reduce your diversification benefits. Having said that, it's not going to reduce your diversification benefit that much because all of those 40, 50 coins are actually quite correlated because they're all in the same asset class. And the asset class is a very tightly knit asset class. So it's much, it's much more like um, something like, you know, the US, US bonds as an asset class where, you know, all the all the instruments have got pretty high correlations above ninety percent because they're all very similar. It's much much less like say I don't know the the agricultural complex where you've got you know got soybean here and you've got lumber here and you've got wheat here and there. they're all and canola and sugar and the, the you know the correlations don't tend to be as high and that where you can get a lot of diversification benefit. So the losses from restricting yourself to just those two markets are not as big as they would be normally. You know so normally I would say as a trend follower if If you've got the money, definitely trade more than two assets per instruments per asset class, you know. I wouldn't trade just I don't know wheat and sugar out of the commodities asset class. I'd trade want to trade you know some other things as well. With crypto, there's less of a benefit in doing that. So there's a loss from not diversifying, but there's also a gain because you're making your exposure to counterparty risk lower. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the things I've been doing is trying to actually quantify that because, you know, it's not like you can um, say, you know, because one thing you could imagine doing is I'm going to trade on this exchange, but I'm going to buy some kind of insurance, like a CDS or something like that, against this exchange defaulting. Um, and, um, you know, if you could do that, what would be the price of that insurance? And, you know, if I do that, am I then fully compensated for all the risk I'm, I'm taking on, you know, does it then make sense to diversify? So that, that's a kind of, it's an, it's an interesting theoretical question because what it allows you to do is almost quantify the, the benefit you're getting from trading on this potentially dodgy exchange. And, it, and you can kind of back out from that implied probability of default and say, well, you know, what I'm saying here is I'm okay with this risk, if I believe that the chance of this particular exchange going bust in the next ten years is five percent or lower, and there is actually academic work that's looked empirically at that, so I'm getting quite nerdy now. I apologise for that. Um, but, uh, Sounds but yeah, like
0: a bit of a crypto expert. <laughs> if not you didn't all. know better, not at all.
1: <laughs> but, but one 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 thing that is interesting about crypto is because it's a relatively new field. There's a lot of kind of stuff you can take care of from traditional finance, from as I said, from a kind of academic point of view and apply it to crypto and it's still quite novel and interesting so
0: yeah we we are running a little bit out of time but um and we don't necessarily have to go into all of these th- points that you raised again you can comment on as you uh, as you wish you say yeah there are things you can take from traditional finance clearly you're taking the fact that they trend and there is momentum to be had uh, in these strategies some people come to crypto because they've been informed that this is a hedge against inflation, or this is a hedge against fiat, or something else. Um, I'm yeah, sh- you're I'm shaking, shaking your I'm head, shaking head, my head. It doesn't. Head. It doesn't seem to. Um, that doesn't seem to have proved it's you know, or that it's some kind of risk offset which didn't work either last year. And probably we don't even have enough data points uh, in the short history of crypto to say anything about that. Uh, but I agree with you. As if you're just taking it as as a speculative instrument. Um, Yeah, there's lots of volatility, and actually, that makes it a, quote-unquote, fairly liquid market for trend followers to trade, because the more vol, uh, the the, the less we're going to trade it, so to speak, in terms of number of contracts, so so that's not a bad thing uh, from a trend-following point of view. But I do want to make the transition. You talked about here dodgy exchanges. We've seen things that have gone wrong in the Bitcoin space. And then you mentioned to me in a in a separate email, oh, we let's talk about the LME, trading LME. And I'm thinking, well, there's a link there in terms of dodgy behavior. Uh, we all know that there was a nickel issue, uh, you know, last year, or I think it was, or the year before. So um, was there something about LME trading you wanted to point out? Yeah, well... It is interesting actually
1: because if you do this, this podcast I did with this these crypto, well, I was going to use a rude word there, but I won't. These crypto people, um, they they um, you know one one thing they're quite quite fond of is taking things that have gone wrong in traditional finance and saying well traditional finance is all bad. Says so like, oh well you know if you trade on on a, on a tradfi exchange your trades could be cancelled. I'm like well, I can think of two specific examples: the the LME copper and the flash crash in 2010. When some of the more offside trades were cancelled for the for the uh, CME, uh, and I would say that probably uh, amounts to point zero 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 zero, you know, gone as many zero as you like, one percent of all trades that have been done on traditional exchanges in the last twenty years. It's just you know. Um, whereas I said, I think I said you're not you're not you know for all the LME's faults, you're not going to see the chief executive of the LME being being kind of up in a US court for massive fraud and for stealing billions of dollars anytime soon. Whereas with crypto, that's an ever present risk, sadly. But anyway, um yeah, no, it was it was part of the fact that I'm, as I've said earlier, I'm expanding my list of markets and um I'm one of the things I'm doing actually is is um adding on some some LME metals, although I'm having to do it in a um in a sort of slightly not, not dodgy way exactly, but but basically and not not even a critic way, but but basically you can't as a um as an as a sort of individual retail investor you can't trade on the lme it's a restricted exchange accessing that those futures is is tricky but but um at least one broker and i won't name them but at least one broker does offer effectively a synthetic version of those contracts so that's been one of the big big holes in my portfolio has has been has been the uh, actually ironically um it's been uk exchanges i've I've been missing so i've been missing a lot of the uh, uk commodity things like brent for example. Uh, Gilt's uh, FTSE one hundred, always kind of ex- financial exchanges, but also the LME. So, so that's why I bring it up. But yeah, it, it seemed like a good time to remind ourselves
0: that that uh, you know crypto is awful, but
1: every now and then something goes wrong in traditional finance as well. And
0: you, you know. know, absolutely. And and speaking of the LME, wasn't it very recently also that there was like a physical delivery where they realised that it wasn't uh, the material? I can't remember which commodity oh, it was. This is hilarious. Yeah. Where it was just a bag of stones, or something. yeah, 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 what no, this saying? is
1: hilarious, and actually um I, I I know that we shouldn't I shouldn't be endorsing other pod podcasts, but um there was a very good episode of Odd Lots where they talked about this specific issue um and about the the kinds of stuff you have to do, so we know you know, we trade this stuff, right? We trade all these physical commodities, giving no thought whatsoever to concerns like storage or delivery or warehousing or anything like that. It's it's almost magic. It's quite you know it's it's great and 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 as long as you roll before expiry, you don't have to worry about delivery. It, it, it can just exist somewhere. But yeah, some somewhere somewhere. You know, I'm I'm trying to think what positions I'm currently holding. But but what have I got? This physical. Let me see. I've got some okay. I've got some some soybeans and some live cattle. So someone somewhere is looking after some cows for me.
0: And um, presumably that there's not like a massive risk of someone So, repl- so when you're short so when you're short it's the cows looking after the farmer. Is that <laughs> how it
1: works? I, I have no idea how it works. This is the beauty of it. But and um, presumably there's no danger anytime soon of someone replacing a cow with a bag of stones. But maybe they'll replace the cow with a less good cow and you know, there'd be a problem. I don't know. But but uh but yeah, the physical could commodities be a bull, actually. could be could be a bull that, well then I might end up with more cows, which would be great if I was if I was long, but maybe not so good. If I was short, but but yeah, I mean the whole the whole physical commodity space is a, uh, I can't. It's a kind of fascinating. Uh, but but I know I do feel like when I'm trading financial markets, like you, Neil, I come from a fixed income market. You know, so I understand the fixed income market. Obviously, everyone understands how things like stocks and FX work. I used to trade options, so things like VIX, I kind of understand those. Um, but you know, but you you start asking me questions about you know about live cattle and about wheat and grain and corn and and sugar, and I'm um, like, well, you know, it, I'm trading. Oh, actually, so I I probably know now know more about the kind of mechanics of Bitcoin, and Ethereum than I than I do about about you know pretty much the, the whole of the commodity complex. So, yeah, I mean, metal, you know, you think metals would be quite straightforward because you do like cows, you would have to feed them. But yeah, there's apparently this ever present danger that. You go in the warehouse to get your, your your nickel or tin or whatever,
0: and you look in the bag and it's not there. It's gone. Yeah. Such is the world uh, of finance, of course. Surprising from time to time. Now, Rob, I think people have realized it's Friday afternoon. Both of you are a little bit loose on the tongue here. But before we do leave the audience to have a nice hot weekend, at least if they're in Europe, I'll, I'll say two things. One is, I think everyone should go and read Howard Marks' latest uh, memo or listen to it on on, on their podcast. Uh, it's called Taking the Temperature. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And actually, if you listen carefully, there are so many lessons, even though he has nothing to do with trend following, there are so many lessons that go straight back to the trend following mindset. So I just enjoyed that. Now... Not that it's going to take more than a couple of minutes, um, but there was a new piece of—I uh, wouldn't, I don't know if I would call it research—but there was a paper out from Mand Group. They always do some good stuff in terms of reminding people uh, of certain attributes of what we do. The latest one, I like the title: "A Different Point of Skew," uh, which, of course, is very nicely put. Um, in terms of the essence of this paper the the reminder they want us all to think about rob um what's kind of your takeaway before well, we wrap well you use the word reminder because of course we we know this
1: stuff and probably a lot of the is podcasts podcast do, do as well but you know me, not necessarily everybody so it's worth saying but basically um what they're pointing out is that skew um, is different for different assets depending on the, the the time period you measure it um so if you look at say equities they're negatively skewed and actually they're negatively skewed at most time horizons. So they look at a, a week and a month, but the same would be true of days. The same would be true of probably even a year. I would say actually, but trend following is not like that. Trend following actually, um, the skewness basically improves the, the the more less frequently you look at them. So in this particular analysis, they, they do the weekly skewness actually is as bad as the as it is for equities, is minus point seven. But when they get to monthly. The, the you know the equity skew MSCI world is down to minus one, for trends it's up to plus one, which of you know is is obviously um, the opposite end of the spectrum, um, and the reason for that is is basically the following. So if you look at very short um, time periods for trend following strategies, uh, assuming they're not trading that quickly as well, you know, so they've got an average holding period that's that's not sort of super quick, then effectively what you're seeing when you look at them when you look at the skew is you're going to see the skew of the typical portfolio of assets they're holding. So that means if they're typically long negative skewed assets, then their returns will themselves be on a daily basis typically negatively skewed. Now, obviously, generally speaking, a trend-falling portfolio is going to be, going to be long. A lot of things that have negative skew, like equities, on average, over a long period of time, it's going to be, for example, short volatility futures like the VIX and the, and the b which which are positively skewed, Short position means negative skewed, so it's not surprising that on average you get a negative skew. Um, not, no, not yes, every like that, but, but you know that that's kind of a rule of thumb. When once you move on to a slower time frequency, of course, what's begun to happen then is that the the equity long early equity strategy is still holding all of its equities, so its skew profile is unaffected. The trend following strategy will of course began will have started cutting p- losses in in things, and it's this process of cutting losses, either with a stop loss or with a some kind of trend following, you know, filter that that produces a positive skew. So that, but that doesn't manifest itself until you've got to a time period that's commensurate with the time period of the strategy you're holding. And if you go out all the way out to a year, you'll see very strong positive skew in trend following strategies. You'll typically see that you know, you know, you'll see quite. I mean, I'm just looking at my own returns. You know, I think my worst ever year I was down eight percent. You know, so you'll see small losses and then. In my bet in in a in a good year, I'll be up twenty five thirty percent. So that's quite, you know, usually quite a strong positive skew. When you move out to to, to really long time periods, so it, it's a nice reminder of that. They have a li- nice little case study uh, where they look at the the returns around sort of um, reversals as well. So you know, so the last kind of sharp reversal we had, where well, the whole Silicon Valley Bank thing happened, and that caused a sharp reversal in a lot of assets, and which tended to be correlated with trend following positions. So there was a bit of a sharp drawdown in CTA performance then. Um, so that they show you know that typically thing things tend to improve after these sharp drawdowns and that's why you know that's why that kind of sharp drawdown that would contribute to a negative skewness a, a short time period when you move to a longer time period because we recover from those they disappear and then you you end up with a much nicer skewness profile so so yeah it's a nice little piece not very long quite quite um easy to read written by by graham robertson who's an old colleague of mine and uh, and oh and uh, someone i don't know actually Um, And they kind of finished saying, well, you know, can we improve skewness? Well, we we can. um, But we'd probably need to, for example, speed up our strategy because faster trend following, for the reasons I've described, will have better daily skewness. But, you know, it's got increased costs. As we talk about at some point in this podcast, it tends not to be as effective as slower trend following. It's a different kind of strategy, really. So you wouldn't necessarily want to do that. And, and if you're a
0: long-term investor, you really don't need to worry about daily skewners anyway. You right? really don't. So, uh, absolutely yeah, not. No, absolutely. I, mean, I
1: mean, it's the same with drawdowns. I mean, the, the um, my long-only portfolio, you know, I, I look at it very rarely. I mean, I try and look at it only once a year and practice more often than that. And it, it doesn't, it looks so great because it's, it's really very, not very volatile at all. Of course, that's because I'm only looking at it once a year. Whereas my, my trend following strategy, because it's
0: trading leverage futures, I tend to look at the PL more frequently and therefore feels more volatile. But this is private equity, right? I mean I was just gonna say, Rob, you are coming out as a private equity investor and a crypto. I know. What's going know, wrong? Well, I don't maximalist. I
1: mean just just to say, there's an interesting thing in the UK at the moment, the government is trying to push um pension schemes to hold more private equity. Um and indeed they've they've the, the, I've actually seen a piece of this said, well, yes, this will increase returns by whoa i mean hang on a second if that if that was a uh you know an individual investment firm making that kind of claim then the F- the fca the financial regulator would be all over them but uh the government the government uh marketing bs apparently is fine so so yeah i mean, I mean i'm not fortunately not going to be one of those people whose pension gets forced into this but actually i might be because i've got a, a university pension scheme which i don't have control over so so maybe maybe I'll I maybe I'll write to my MP, my Member of Parliament, and see if uh, I can I can lobby against
0: this crazy, crazy attempt to I don't know. Well now that you've moved into crypto, nothing really <laughs> would surprise me. So even if you move into politics just to get this overturned, Rob, I would not be surprised. But there yeah, we are.
1: Yeah. Everything you thought you knew about me is just yeah, it's gone. How how are we doing in the Tour de France, Niels, before we wrap up?
0: You know, I I actually have to say I don't know the exact uh, position right now, um, but I will be checking it once we've recorded.
1: Yeah, I think that's good. That's good. We don't want people to listen to this and get spoilers about the Tour de France if they are watching that on catch up as well. So,
0: yeah. Anyways, when 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 they listen to this, it'll be old news. Uh, anyways. Um, all right, well, Rob, you're off on your extended holiday, as usual, at this time of year. I hope it's going to be a great one uh, for you, of course, and we can't wait to have you back in a couple of months, of course, with lots of new uh, ideas and thoughts and 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 whatever, experiences. Now, if you enjoy these conversations, why don't you head over to your favorite podcast platform, leave a rating and review, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, we so much appreciate it those rating and reviews. Next week, I'm joined by Andrew for another fun and insightful conversation about CTA ETFs, uh, no doubt, um, and what's been going on in this space. We already alluded to it. Another new exciting entrance uh, this week. So make sure you send us your questions. Info at toptradersandplug.com is where you should send them. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.